This week's episode is about the topic of human trafficking and contains material not suitable for all listeners. Please use your discretion when listening. The Anchored City Podcast is recorded in Anchorage, Alaska, on the traditional lands of the Denina Athabascan people. City Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Kiekenfeld. In 2017, Covenant House International, along with Loyola University New Orleans Modern Slavery Research Project, released a report titled Labor and Sex Trafficking Among Homeless Youth, a 10-City Study. Anchorage was one of the cities in that study. The report showed that nearly one in five of the interviewed youth were identified as victims of some form of human trafficking. Of the 92 youth that were identified as sex trafficking victims within the study, nearly 58% were in situations of force, fraud, or coercion, characteristic of human trafficking under the U.S. federal definition. 68% of the youth who had either been trafficked or engaged in survival sex or commercial sex had done so while homeless. 91% of the youth reported being offered lucrative work opportunities that turned out to either be fraudulent, scams, or sex trafficking. 28% of the youth at Covenant House Alaska were the survivors of human trafficking. And of the 10 cities studied, Anchorage had the highest reported prevalence of trafficking. That's a lot of statistics, but stop to think about just those last two stats. 28% of the youth that Covenant House Alaska serves in Anchorage, nearly a third are survivors of trafficking. And of the 10 cities studied, Anchorage had the highest rate of human trafficking. Add to that the fact that 91% of the youth in the 10-city study said they'd been approached for work like trafficking, and a pretty scary picture emerges. That same report notes that homeless youth are vulnerable to both sex and labor trafficking because they tend to experience a higher rate of the primary risk factors for trafficking. Those risk factors are poverty, unemployment, a history of sex abuse, and a history of mental health issues. If they have families who are involved in the commercial sex trade or gangs, their risks are even higher. Homeless youth indicated that they struggled to find paid work, affordable housing, and support systems that would help them access basic necessities. They had experienced discrimination in both their jobs and housing. A confluence of factors made the homeless youth that were interviewed vulnerable to both sex and labor traffickers who preyed on their needs. It also made them more likely to turn to the sex trade for survival. That report from Covenant House is for youth, but there's really no reason to assume that the story's any different for vulnerable adults facing homelessness. One of the heads of the homelessness hydra is human trafficking, and that's the topic of our discussion on this episode. Joining me is Aaron Terry, who's a victim specialist with the FBI. Here's our conversation. That I have yet to cross, and I have dreamed of faraway places. 
where imagination just gets lost and I would search the wide world over for one proverb that is true but of all the roads I'll ever walk I just I can't have you so my name is Erin Terry I am a victim specialist with the FBI I sit here in the Anchorage field office. I am one of two victim specialists that work uh, here in Alaska. And <clears throat> we are we have a pretty cool job. We work with victims who are impacted by federal crime. And that comes from you know, all the different case work investigations that our agents are doing. Um, I've been with the Bureau for seven years, and uh, but I've been doing, uh, we're working with victims in violent crime for about two decades and most of my career has been up here in alaska so i'm i'm fortunate one i i get to work for the bureau but i also get to live here which is a good, pretty good combination um, i have a background in psychology and uh, primarily my case load is made up of uh, victims who are within our violent crime unit so that includes our violent crimes against children our human trafficking investigations and our internet crimes against children. So those are, uh, that's the majority of the direct service that I provide. Uh, and I also work very closely with our Juno office. We have two agents down there. And so I cover the Southeast, luckily. Uh, I'm a mom of two boys. I've, I've got two kids in the Anchorage School District and uh, um, I have a nice, wonderful spouse here in Anchorage. It's also in the member of, of the law enforcement community. And her and I um, are members of the queer community. Right on. Well, thanks for letting us know a little bit about you. You said part of your job is around human trafficking. So if you could share with listeners just a little bit about what you've been, you're experiencing working in the area of human trafficking. And then if there has been a relationship because this season is about homelessness, if there is some connection there as well um, with your work. Yeah. So as a member of our investigative teams, we work with all different types of community partners, law enforcement agencies, medical providers, and a, a variety of those folks often are responding to concerns of human trafficking while simultaneously working with people who are experiencing homelessness. And so by the, the benefit of their work, the fruit of their work, we often are pulled into um, those types of, of connections and open investigations based off of you know those initial reports and people who are willing to talk with us um, my role within the bureau i am not an agent i don't have a, a gun or a badge uh, but i tag alongside them uh, often daily and um, i'm there to conduct that kind of complete needs assessment for victims so listening and learning about uh, their particular needs what they're challenged by currently it could be simple things like they need new eyeglasses or they haven't been to the dentist in years. Um, it could be that they need, they haven't had a nice meal for a while. They need new clothing, they need a shower. Uh, perhaps it's a, you know, a little bit more extensive where they do need some emergency medical care, uh, have some major safety concerns and we're there to kind of help navigate those different issues and challenges and figure out what different programs in the community may be available to fill those holes. So uh, really we have uh, 
such a strong partnership with a lot of the programs in the community that serve the homeless or houseless population that it's easy for us to get involved when a referral has been made. So I know the term human trafficking gets used a lot over recent years, um, but it might be helpful for me and also for listeners to, to get an understanding of what exactly is human trafficking? Well, this is a long definition because it's a pretty complex crime. <laughs> it's a, human trafficking is an umbrella term. Uh, it encapsulates both labor and sex trafficking. And both of those crimes are being committed in uh, our communities, impacting people of all ages, all ethnicities, all genders, citizens of the United States, foreign-born individuals. Uh, and those crimes um, really are probably one of the most uh, significant type of crime, the complexity of trauma that occurs. It's very difficult to escape uh, these types of situations. So when we look at the statutes, we see that these types of crimes occur when a person is bought or sold uh, or exploited through acts of force, fraud, or coercion. And so it kind of breaks down into, are you forcing this person into some type of labor or are you forcing them into some type of sexual act? Sometimes it's a blend. Uh, And so our role is to sort out what's happened with that person, what their experience has been, where have those crimes occurred and, you know, who's responsible for committing those acts. Um, Trafficking really looks a lot of different ways especially when we start to take a look around the state of Alaska. And when you look at what it looks like here in more of an urban setting than uh, remote aspects, but ultimately we're looking at um, elements of physical and sexual violence, oftentimes starvation, isolation, uh, threats to a victim's family or even their, their pets, their loved ones, threats of deportation, Uh, really can just, depending on what the victim is being forced to do, really can create that, uh, that motive of, of control. So um, across the board, I think a variety of experiences that we hear from victims is there's almost always an element of that psychological control, almost a mental leash on a person where they don't believe that there is much of a life beyond what they're experiencing. The debt is too large to repay. The the fear of threat is too overwhelming to reach out and get help. So there's, it's hard to convince someone that there's another, another way of life um, when you start to have those initial reactions. So, um, You know, our cases have included things like um, folks who've been forced into domestic restaurant, factory, agricultural work, um, working very, very long hours, uh, far exceeding the average work day of, you know, a typical employee. Their pay is maybe minimum or not at all, or they're having to turn all of their money over to the person that's trafficking them. Uh, and then when we get into the, the weeds of sex trafficking, it can, again, look um, quite complicated, uh, looks different here in Anchorage than it would in, in the bush. But really, it's important to understand when we start to dive into the sex trafficking line of thinking, the, the major difference between sex trafficking and prostitution. 
And so hopefully um, avenues like this, media interactions like this help us clear up some of those myths regarding those differences. And I'd be happy to kind of explain more about what those differences are if you're not familiar. Yeah, that would be great if you would explain what those differences are. That would be really helpful, I think, not just for me, but for those that are listening as well. Yeah, absolutely. So to really understand the difference between prostitution or sex work um, versus sex trafficking, we, we talk about sex work kind of having three components. So you have a person who is providing the sex act, the person receiving, oftentimes called the John, and then the exchange of goods or services. So those three components. When it transitions into trafficking, there's a, there's a fourth layer, and that's another person who's in the mix who is benefiting from the exchange. And so whatever that exchange is, and again, um, we call it goods or services, but it could be money, uh, it could be housing, a ride, a phone, uh, food, a trip to the nail salon, like anything of value <clears throat> that a victim needs, that a, that a vulnerable person may need, if they are you know, coerced or manipulated into a sexual act in order to receive that, but then another person takes a portion of that then we have that trafficking piece. So it's uh, it can look a lot of different ways here, but it's certainly something that we see play out and that pattern repeat uh, with a lot of the folks that we are, are interacting with. Not everyone is ready to talk to the FBI or to tell their whole story, but we're picking up on pieces that tell a very similar story. So I know in a in a previous episode we told the story of the um, the crazy horse case, which was the first trafficking case prosecuted under the 2000 um, Trafficking Victims Protection Act in Anchorage. Um, so we've we've brushed on the history a little bit before in a previous episode, but I guess what and maybe you kind of already um, talked about this in your previous answer. But what's kind of the current environment around human trafficking? in Anchorage and in Alaska, like, what are you seeing? And I know you can't get into details and all of that, but what, what does that look like for the city and, and maybe for the state? Yeah, that's a great question. And what a, what a legendary case for, for our state and for the country. You know, it's been 20 years since that case was prosecuted and a lot of awareness has occurred, a lot of training throughout the federal, state, and local governments have occurred. Additionally, a lot of private sector industries have engaged in this conversation as well, which really helps spread the responsibility for on all of us to be aware and to protect minors, protect vulnerable people that we think may be uh, in the mix. So like I feel now, I, I hope now that it would be much more difficult for that type of situation to occur. Um, however, you know, sadly, it's it's not impossible. Um, when we look at the current landscape of the more recent sex trafficking cases that we've investigated here in Anchorage, you know, we no longer see this kind of the old traditional pimp culture of having multiple victims in an apartment he typically he is controlling their movements throughout the day he's setting up the dates he's escorting them to the dates you know there and back taking the money immediately that is um may still be the case in other parts of of the country but for us here what we've seen is a, a bit of a morph into 
a little bit of a hands-off laid back approach by the offender or the pimp where there is in those initial manipulative and grooming stages of encountering or recruiting a victim that initial supply of drugs which will quickly as we all know the you know the the depth of how uh quick it is to become addicted that addiction is facilitated by the pen and now uh, there becomes this codependency between the pimp and the one, two, three, four, however many victims he's offending on. And he threatens their freedom, their ability to, you know, make their own choices by being the only chain of supply for the drug that they are now addicted to. And so he doesn't care where they live. He doesn't care what their days look like. He doesn't care if they have other jobs, but he is the only supplier of that drug. And when they need a hit, they can only come to him or then there will be consequences. Then the threats of violence and fear, deportation, whatever that might look like, really start to come into play. And so, uh, <clears throat> you know, when you have that pimp perpetrator manipulation happening that complicates our investigations quite honestly it makes it harder for us to really pinpoint the direct link of trafficking between this person and, and this victim um, but it also creates a an interesting psychological impact for somebody who's always in that fog of a drug or the fear of withdrawal and uh you know that sense of no matter where I go or what I do, I still have to return to this person with the money that is demanded upon me uh, in any way I can make it. Most of the time that is through sexual um, work, through the sex work industry, but not always. And so we often see um, victims getting caught up in other criminal activity, which makes assisting them even more complex because they're afraid to come and talk to law enforcement. So um, yeah, what a complex dynamic that is, that you know, we're trying to untangle and victims are trying to navigate now. Yeah, I mean, just inside what you're talking about is super complex. And then this season we've been talking about homelessness as this complex dynamic of all these interconnected um, things that are all kind of feeding on each other are all intertwined and woven together in one way or another. Um, and one of those is a, is sort of human trafficking, and that's one of the reasons that we're talking with you. So I don't know if you can speak at all to how how do human trafficking and homelessness intersect? Like where do they they come into contact with each other? Well, I think you got to dig into the mind of a, of an offender and what motivates them. When we look at how perpetrators recruit, they're looking for a vulnerability to exploit. And so, you know, sadly, folks who are, are homeless or houseless, they don't have those foundational safety nets that a lot of us do and take for granted. And so that, that generates vulnerabilities that are quickly identified and exploited by people who are looking to harm them. And so um, those hurdles of safety, connectivity, mental health resources, you know, all the different things that 
folks who are unable to return to a safe home every day, uh, pimps are, are finding these little manipulative ways to engage them to create a false sense of hope that they can help fulfill those, those needs, that they can provide safety, connection. I mean, all those basic things that we all want and need and thrive off of. Um, this population needs them the most. And so it's no wonder to me that offenders who are looking to control and manipulate people will seek out the most vulnerable population in our communities. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense that the connection is is between, isn't that vulnerability place where there's there's an ability to step in and manipulate the situation because people are are feeling vulnerable or feeling desperate or or whatever. So yeah. that totally makes sense that that would be the link. Can you share with me a little bit about what the FBI and maybe you in particular are doing to combat um, trafficking in the state or in the city? What does that look like for you all? Well, it certainly takes an army. It's not just the FBI working alone. Um, you know, we are really, truly a united front with numerous community partners, obviously other law enforcement agencies, but social service programs, medical partners, educators, um, and of course our prosecutors. Uh, we are all cross-training each other. We're sharing our success stories. We're listening to the criticism. We're listening to, you know, our partners at Covenant House who are saying, you know, why kids aren't coming forward and talking to the FBI. How can we become more accessible? How can I, you know, can I come over and hang out during a, a, a cooking demonstration and just get to know kids, hoping that somewhere down the line that might lead to them being more comfortable telling us about anything, not just trafficking, but anything that maybe they're worried about. So um, as a victim specialist for the government, you know, I, we have counterparts in the U.S. Attorney's Office and a lot of the other federal programs have victim service providers. You know, our purpose on these teams is to really help us keep the victim at the center of the investigation. And so that includes, you know, offering my feedback in how we engage a victim accompanying that victim through the process of an interview or multiple interviews, if, if that's what's needed, doing a lot of follow-up um, with, that, with that victim who we hope will someday be able to testify in court, and everything in between those, which is a, a lot of ask for somebody who is in a, a space, hopefully of recovery, but not always, um, we may be investigating someone who harmed them, but in the meantime, they're still being victimized in other manners in their life. And so we're always, you know, weaving in um, new referrals, new uh, funding sources that we can identify that will hopefully fill some of those needs that they have. Um, our, our investigations are lengthy. So something that I may identify as useful for a young person that I'm working with three months down the line, two years down the line, their life looks much differently. And so, you know, my counterpart at the U.S. Attorney's Office, her needs assessment's going to look drastically different. But our teamwork, our warm handoff, the wraparound services, the focus that us as a whole investigative body uh, have on really making sure that we're doing right by a victim is what is making these cases successful uh, and helping us all, you know, kind of keep 
keep the wagon centered around doing doing right by this population, even if sometimes that means we forego being able to get somebody off the street. Thanks. That's helpful to know how you're doing that. And that there's other um, victim advocates out there in other agencies. That's that's a good piece of information. Something I wasn't aware of. So that's really that's encouraging to me that there's people walking alongside through the system as, as they go through that. That I have yet to cross And I have dreamed of faraway places Where imagination just gets lost And I would search the wide world over For one proverb that is true But of we are pausing this episode to share with you an exciting opportunity to meet fellow residents of Anchorage and engage in thought-provoking ideas. Wednesday, December 7 at 6 p.m. at Willowa Social, a culture shift is happening. Culture Shift is a monthly event brought to you by the Alaska Humanities Forum. At each Culture Shift event, two guests take turns speaking on a topic that they're passionate about, an idea that challenges cultural norms or assumptions. Then the audience takes part in a fun, interactive, and thought-provoking Q&A to find connections between the two. At the December Culture Shift event, I'm one of the guests speaking. I'll be sharing about how human sustainability is true sustainability. But even if I wasn't one of the presenters, I'd still encourage you to go. I've started going every month, and I love it. So consider joining us Wednesday, December 7 at 6 p.m. at Willowa Social for Culture Shift. A link to information and tickets is in the show description. Now back to our conversation. And with all those lessons learned, with the crazy long life that I lived already, and the scars I earned, I still can't seem to find the answers. And though the questions I never knew, but loving you. This season, we've been asking kind of a um, magical question <laughs> of guests, <laughs> and that is if you had a magic wand, so no barriers around funding or infrastructure or um, capacity or anything like that, if you could wave a magic wand, if it was just up to you, Aaron, what would you do to uh, either alleviate or lessen trafficking in Anchorage and in Alaska? If you could just wave a magic wand and make it happen, what would you do? I'd get more wands. <laughs> I I definitely would would need a, a couple of layers of, of magical magical help. Um, you know, we've kind of, we've talked about it today. Like these are very complex cases, and I think one of the areas that I I believe would be maybe most impactful is just to continue to educate the community and the public about what the dynamics of labor trafficking and sex trafficking really look like because we are the folks that fill the jury and make the decisions when it's time to convict someone uh, of these types of crimes. So, you know, without that education, we oftentimes perpetuate the pretty awful stereotypes regarding victimization. Victim blaming um, is common uh, in various types of crimes. And, you know, again, it it just creates a lack of general compassion for some of the most vulnerable Alaskans who often don't even realize what's happening to them. It may be a life that they've always only known or that, you know, they, they still uh, have a lot of emotional tie to the person that's harming them. 
Um, I think that secondly, I would love for there to be an infinite amount of resources for all the services that a victim needs and that those services could be available in every community. Um, I was just recently at a, a, the, a BIA conference with a lot of amazing um, rural providers who struggle to find resources to fill the most basic, um, most basic needs, a crisis line, a shelter bed, food, clothing. They're relying on um, community part, community members, laymen, not an agency to provide those needs. And so um, it's difficult to talk about, you know, how to fill all these needs that a victim may have when it might be a community of a hundred people and there's just not the supply. So um, a couple wants would be necessary to solve this problem. <laughs> yeah. And the one you were hitting on there, just right at the end, we were talking last week um, about the rural urban divide and just the, the different types of resources that are available, both in the urban environment and in the rural environment and how that changes quite a bit. So yeah, maybe a separate magic wand for each place <laughs> would be really helpful as well. As you were speaking, a, a question came to mind for me, and that's, you know, we've all seen these signs or heard, like, if you see something, say something. So if someone does suspect a situation that looks like trafficking or they know it is, like, who should they contact? Where should they go? What should be their first step? Um, if they're aware of something, who should they reach out to? That's a tough question because, you know, we live in a, a culture where adults do have the right to be involved in the sex industry if it's on their own fruition. And so if they're, if they're encountering somebody in that industry, um, I think that, you know, letting law enforcement know what they're seeing, what they're observing is always okay. Um, the FBI relies heavily, we're an intelligence agency. So we rely heavily on just what the public tells us that is concerning to them. And then it's up to our agents to, you know, figure out if there is a criminal element there and if we have a, a person who's been being victimized. Um, so talking with law enforcement is always a good idea. Uh, I always encourage people to um, not be afraid to just approach folks and ask if there's anything that they need help with. If they do need a ride, if they do need a phone to make a, a phone call. Um, we all need to be a little bit more thoughtful and caring towards our neighbors and, um, you know, asking if they need help uh, and not making decisions for people is important. Now, in our state, uh, Alaska has done um, something pretty extraordinary, and they have pushed the, the age range of um, sex trafficking, particularly, and labor trafficking as well, but up to age 19. So, uh, federally, we go up to age eight, 18 and sorry, under age 18, um, we will get involved uh, quickly to figure out what's going on with this minor. Um, children cannot consent to be part of the sex industry. They cannot consent to be involved in um, any type of trafficking crime. Uh, and because of the state statute, we have been able to jump that up to 19. And so our collaboration with the state troopers and other municipal law enforcement officer agencies allow us to work with um, those that 18-year-old category. So um, if you're looking at that minor and, and now you're having concerns, absolutely report that. 
and cross-report it. Let OCS know, the Office of Children's Services know that you have worries and let law enforcement know that you have worries about what you're seeing. And um, we collaborate daily with OCS to make sure that no one's falling through the cracks there and we are looking into any concerns of, of trafficking. Um, ultimately, it's, it's a great piece of information for the public to know that there is a trafficking resource center and a hotline that's available. So if, if they do have that moment where they're reaching out to that, that person in the community, providing a phone number, an 800 number um, may be safe. It may not be. Um, we are not in the business of handing our, our business cards out to people anymore. That can get people in trouble. But a note with an 800 number may be some, a safe avenue for someone. And again, that's the National Human Trafficking Resource Center hotline. And I have that phone number available if you'd like to add it to your, your blog. Yeah, we'll certainly add that to the show notes so that we have that number for folks. Another question that I usually like to ask towards the end of the interview, so I have two more questions for you, but one is, what am I missing? Is there something about human trafficking that's often missed that you would want me and listeners to know? You know, a couple things. This type of, of sex trafficking dynamic that we see play out in Anchorage, but often in, in rural areas as well, is, you know, it's one of the most complex domestic violence dynamics that I've ever come across. And the reason that that is worth highlighting is because it's not just somebody doing something bad and mean to another person, but it's this interwoven complexity of love and fulfillment and connectivity of, you know, care of, I'm, you know, I'm your home but we're a team. So in order for you to stay in this relationship with me, I need you to do your part and your part's going to be, you know, having, you know, forced sexual contact with the landlord. Like it's not as black and white as people may think that it is. And when you're talking with a victim who is wanting help, but also not wanting this person that they may believe is their their boyfriend, their girlfriend, their, their partner, they don't want them to be in trouble with the law. And so while maybe they don't want to be going out there and having to go on these dates, they also don't want their, their known existence, their known environment to disappear. And so that's a really hard line to walk, which is, you know, at one of the, you know, one of the most, um, frequent tips that we give investigators and folks working with victims of trafficking is to not ever speak negatively about the pimp, um, to speak negatively about the lifestyle, the, the cons of being, you know, out in unsafe places or having ongoing medical issues or always being scared. Talk about that, but avoid talking about um, somebody that they may really truly be in love with and, feel loved by in, you know, a way that we may think is unhealthy, but it's, it's working for them in some way. That's, it's keeping them in that relationship to some degree. Um, secondly, I, I want people to understand that we are not in the business of, of charging people for prostitution. 
um, long ago, law enforcement would, you know, make arrests of people who are, you know, working in brothels or being in the sex industry. And that's not our focus. We have uh, a limited number of agents dedicated to these these types of investigations, and we have we don't have an unlimited amount of resources. And so we are focused investigatively, emotionally, on um, identifying and removing individuals in our community that are harming others. So that's who we prioritize. So lastly, I really, I want the public to be able to look beyond the headlines when they see a successful prosecution. Trafficking is a difficult charge to stick and it demands a lot of cooperation from victims. And sometimes it's just too much to ask. Um, it's almost counterintuitive to our, our victim-centric modality if we're putting a victim through the ringer, trying to get them on the, the stand to testify. But you know, if you read any convictions about you know, manufacturing production of, you know, manufacturing or production of child pornography, kidnapping, extortion, felon in possession. You know, you may just want to ask yourself, could this charge have spun out of a trafficking investigation? Because a lot of um, some of our most successful takedowns of trafficking rings have included things like a tax scheme conviction. So um, always being curious and looking a little bit more in detail about the types of cases that are being successfully prosecuted by our U.S. Attorney's Office is a good tip. Great. Thank you. That was super helpful to be thinking about, like asking the next question, reading between the lines and, and kind of wondering what might have been brought up by an investigation that, that doesn't necessarily have trafficking attached to it. I think that's really important to think through. The last question that I always ask guests is about themselves. Um, in the middle of all the hard work that you're doing, is there something that you do to keep yourself centered, a, a spiritual, a self-care or mindfulness practice that you do that keeps you centered in the middle of the work that you're doing? Well, I think you nailed it. It's that, it's that balance, right? Like we all, we're all walking around trying to be Jedis, but balancing the force. Um, you know, I think that for me in this field, as, as long as I've been in it, it's definitely a balance of direct service with community outreach and you know, continuously learning about new partners and new programs that are out there, getting to travel. I've been all over this state and what a gift because there are so many beautiful cultures and communities to connect with. And I've not, I've never once been unwelcomed anywhere that I've been. And I think that that's so valuable for us to continue to understand the complexity of crime in our communities. Um, you know, I, uh, I, my family and I, we are, avid outdoor people. We're, we're bike packers. We love to get out there in the back country, um, away from the chaos of crime, of the phone calls and the emails that are come along with these types of jobs. Um, but I think, you know, truly it's a, being super mindful of the moments that you do get the sweet little moments with your judge judgment free dogs, or, you know, that, that, uh, beautiful Kenai River that just keeps on flowing no matter what's going on in the world. Um, and I think that, you know, probably it takes a thousand different tools for me to kind of stay in this work, but I know that I have a responsibility to 
um, not let this work that I've chosen to do harm the people that I love and my family. And so they didn't choose this job. I've, I've done that. So really just trying to be more protective of them and the time that I have with them. And um, probably one of the biggest lessons I've learned in the last year is to um, move through this job with a ton of compassion, but to save my empathy for my family. And that is a, a little counterintuitive to what I learned early back in this field, but I think that that's probably what's going to keep me in it for the long run. So, cause you know, our, our partners and our kids and our spouses and our friends, they, they deserve our empathy too. So we got to keep some on reserve. <laughs> I love what you say that, that it takes a thousand tools to, to get through um, the work that you're doing and what, and lots of folks, the jobs that they have to do, it takes lots of different little things and lots of awarenesses and gratitudes and ways of thinking about it. So thanks for sharing a few of yours and thanks for sharing with us about trafficking and the work that you're doing. We really appreciate it. Yeah, we appreciate you highlighting this. It's an incredibly important topic to us and I hope people will tune in. Thank you to Aaron Terry for joining me on this episode. If you know someone involved in human or sex trafficking or suspect that that might be the case, I invite you to check out the section in the show notes titled, Where Can a Victim of Human Trafficking Go for Help? Until next time, I'm Joel Kiekenfeld. Be good out there. The Anchored City Podcast is grateful for a grant from Resonate Global Mission and a partnership with Street Psalms, both of which contribute to making this podcast possible. And we're grateful for you, our listeners. If you are grateful for what you are hearing, please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and recommend us to your friends. You can support this podcast by selecting the Anchorage Urban Training Collaborative at smile.amazon.com when you shop at Amazon so that when you make a purchase, Amazon donates to us. Resources used to make this episode can be found in the show details. The Anchored City Podcast is a production of the Anchorage Urban Training Collaborative. The mission of the collaborative is to train the heads, hands, and hearts of urban leaders to love their city and seek its peace. When we say peace, we mean the desire to see a world where all things are the way they're supposed to be for all people. Find us online at anchorageutc.org or on social media at Anchorage UTC. Our theme music is by Anchorage's own Monica Lutner. <laughs>